0: You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way.
1: Hello, this is Dr. Carrie Benient with the Fertility Center of Las Vegas, and I am joined by my two sparkling co-hosts, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello. And Dr. Abby Evelyn from Nashville Fertility Center. Hey, everybody.
2: How are you girls doing? We're doing, doing great.
1: great. Yeah. What have you been up to this weekend? Anything fun and exciting? And went shopping. Ooh, what kind of shopping? <laughs> clothes shopping, clothes shopping,
2: kids shopping, stuff shopping. Car clothes shopping. shopping. Clothes shopping. My we. I have two weddings that I'm going to um, this ah. fall. And so I decided to go get an... Nice new fancy dress, and so it was. Oh, cool. It was pretty cool. It was pretty cool. So we went to what's it look like? so I went to um, Neiman Marcus Last Call at our outlet mall. Oh, oh yeah, I, I I love I love bargain shopping, but I have to bargain shop at like places that are spread out enough. Like I can't walk into a store that's all cluttered.
1: Yeah,
2: it, it puts me on information overload, and I look through and walk out with anxiety. So oh, that is, no,
0: no, no, Susan, that is fun, fun, fun to dig through everything and find the like the really expensive, well-made outfit that you get for like fifty percent off fifty percent. Do that
2: and be organized and not make me claustrophobic. <laughs> <laughs> like,
0: oh, I yeah,
1: like,
2: I love shopping at Soma. Like I can go at, to like a normal Soma store and walk out with something. I have walked into our soma outlet literally five times like v- with very intentional I want to buy like a pajama top and I cannot make a purchase I am like struck with like immobility at See, lack of that's, organization
0: <laughs> that's your problem you've got to walk into a store like that going what bargain can I find it may be a pair of shoes it may be a top it may be a dress you just have to let the let the world open up to you and let let the store give you what it's got you can't go in with like I've got to get this or that because you know when you want to buy something you can never find it when you need it so
2: yeah well this is one of those times I had to go find something specific so we went in (laughs) and I went shopping with my daughter and we pulled like 10 things off the rack and we go in the dressing room and I'm like pick which one you want me to try on first and I tried on the first (laughs) dress and it was like (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh, that's cool. That usually doesn't happen with dresses.
2: And then I tried on the other nine and it was just like, mm. but it was, it's oh. it's blue and it's strapless. And it, it was like, it was literally like when we put the zipper up, I was like, it fits perfect. Like, well,
0: that's awesome.
2: nobody can all see the right Susan. places and Susan, all the loose places. Susan's tall with this long,
0: thin body. So there's not too much. I think that would not look good on her, but, um, I I think uh, probably all those non dresses looked really good, but that's cool. Blue is really pretty color. I like royal blue. It
2: was, it was really, it was fun. It was one of those dresses that, I mean, you have to have a kind of fancy event to go to and I I haven't gone to it, you know, with COVID and everything like that. I mean, all the like fancy stuff we used to go to, I haven't been to anything in two, three years. And so I was like, need a new dress. So it was fun. Now I got to get shoes.
0: I had a nephew that got married um, about a month ago and I was kind of like you. I was like, I want to wear just a really, you know, it wasn't a long dress or anything. It was an outdoor wedding, but kind of a fancy dress. And so I don't know what hit me, but I decided I was going to wear a fascinator with the dress nice. and I couldn't find one that matched the dress. So I used my skills of color matching and color mixing and mixed up color and like just painted the the fascinator. And it actually looked pretty good. I thought so.
2: That's cool. That's cool. You know, I was watching, um, I think I was watching Sweet Magnolias. Have you all seen that series? Uh huh. Okay, mm-hmm. love the series. Very cute. But they were having a they were having a um, funeral slash celebration of life um, for someone in the town that had passed away, and it takes place, I think, somewhere in the south, like Virginia or somewhere like that. You know, and they were all wearing fascinators, and I was just like. Oh, I hope I hope this becomes a big thing in the US.
0: (laughs) You know, I have to say I felt a little bit dorky wearing it, but I'm like, you know, I'm just going to do this. I want to wear this fascinator and I think it looks good. And A lot of people came up and commented
2: on it and I stood out whether I wanted to or not. (laughs) It's just a cool name for a hat. Yeah, I like (laughs) it.
1: For any fashion item like... If you walk into something wearing a fascinator, it means you are the most fascinating person there. <laughs> and so
0: it seems appropriate for you to wear. Exactly. Well, I, th- I think it's back from my days when I lived in Louisville and did my fellowship there. I got used to once a year, we'd wear hats and if you went to Derby. So, yeah. Yeah.
1: All right. So let's let's bump into our topic. And what we're going to go through today, we have a ton of questions about really, what's the next step, things didn't go the way that we wanted to with our IBF cycle. So what do we do now? So we're talking a little bit about what are next steps? What do you do with the failed transfer? Um, one of the things we noticed about these questions is there's a lot of nuance in them. And so that's, it's part of the reason where some of the stuff we're going to talk about, we have talked about before, but some of them are more of the kind of the the very subtle things that we pick up on we're like well maybe we do this so not the not the concrete hit you over the head things but just a well maybe you tried this kind of things a so. lot of
2: the art of medicine yes yeah the art,
1: the art of art yes
2: yeah. so. <laughs> the art of art yes all right all Susan, what you got okay Hi, ladies. Love your podcast. My husband and I have been trying to conceive for two years. Listening to your emphasis has been really helpful, especially over the very difficult last six months. My question is, what additional tests would you recommend or other options we might have before IVF? Um, they've had all the normal tests um, done twice by their RE and OBGEN. Everything's normal. Two semen analysis and HSG normal. She's 30 with unexplained infertility and has been very frustrated. They've done three Clomid only cycles, three Clomid and IUI cycles and a letrozole, gonal F, progesterone IUI cycle with the REI. Can't rationalize spending any more time or money on failed IUIs, even though my doctor said I've had several really good follicles. Are there any other tests we might not have done yet? Anything else you could recommend before we jump into IVF, which seems like our next best chance? The cost of IVF is not something that will be easy on us right now, but we're both ready to start a family and feel like I'm close to my breaking point after the fourth failed IUI in two years of being in limbo. Any tips or advice would be greatly appreciated. Thanks.
1: I would make sure that there's a good intrauterine evaluation. Mm-hmm. HSG is great for tubes. Um, I'm assuming with your REI, you've gotten all of the egg testing done, and that they've got a good idea of dosing from your prior cycles. Like that's probably um, in place. I, I think a good uterine evaluation, saline sonogram, hysteroscopy, or both, is is probably one of the things you for sure want to do before you hit a transfer. Doesn't really matter before retrieval, but for sure before transfer, I would do that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's tough because there's just not a lot of tests to do anymore. It's interesting over the course of my career, there's less tests that we do now than we used to do before. We know that. Sperm penetration assays don't really tell us anything. Antisperm antibodies don't really tell us anything. And so, and, and I think we all three get that a lot. Like, okay, well, you've done these tests. Well, w- w- what are the other tests? I'm ready to do those. And unfortunately, there's just not a lot of other tests. There's millions and millions of things that probably have to, have to happen for an egg and a sperm to get together. And, you know, I think at 30, the good news is you're young, but you've also been at it for two years. And, you know, you're ready to have a baby. And so I think a push towards something more aggressive is probably the right answer, even though we don't really have any tests to look and say, you know, kind of what the problem is. We know that IVF is more successful and you want to be pregnant. You don't want to just spend your life doing tests.
2: Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, and one thing to remember is that when you're doing IUIs, your best chances are in your first three cycles. Um, mm-hmm. After that, it doesn't mean you can't conceive, but it means your success rates have really started to plateau. And so... You know, there's some people who would choose to do more. Um, but, you know, if your ovarian reserve is good and you need to take 3, 6, 12 months to save up for IVF um, so that you can do it in a kind of financial um, situation that isn't going to add a, as much stress on you, I would, I would take that opportunity. You know, it, it is one advantage of trying early and having a little time on your side.
1: One thing that I would consider, because you mentioned how, how the stress of the failed IUIs is hitting you, I would definitely make sure you have some sort of support group going into this because IVF is difficult and, and any fertility treatment is difficult. And so having at least someone else who's totally impartial, who's not your spouse um, or your best friend say, this isn't your fault, you can't control this. And focusing on the ways that you can survive to get through this, um, it can be really helpful. And so it's not, it won't necessarily cure the pain. And this applies to both physical and mental pain for whatever is causing it, but it won't necessarily cure the pain. But if it can help you live with it without being driven to distraction, that is very worthwhile. Yeah. Absolutely. Good advice. advice. What you got next, Susan?
2: All right. Um, I'm 37 with secondary infertility due to bilaterally blocked tubes. AMH 0.98. Have always had regular cycles. Got pregnant with my two-year-old son within eight weeks of trying. So my husband and I knew pretty quickly that something was off. I just finished my first egg retrieval and got the following. Eight eggs, five mature, four fertilized, one day seven... Um, six BB blast PGT pending. My question is: If we had to repeat the egg retrieval process, should we modify the med regimen? If so, how? And is there anything else I could do to optimize egg retrieval if I have to do this again? I'm pretty healthy, non-smoker with normal BMI. Medication included: gonalef and Menopure, Sertotidy antagonist, dual tr- trigger with Lupron and HCG shots. So. I in general I mean it's a there's even nuances amongst what you described <laughs> mm-hmm. okay yeah. so um you know when I'm looking at somebody who has diminished ovarian reserve, I like to do something like an estrogen priming protocol, make sure you weren't on birth control pills to suppress you in that way, um, to give you a little um, more lead off. I always say that it lets your ovaries take a nap before you start your stimulation um, so that they're like, we're ready to party. So we want, we want partying follicles.
1: Yeah, I think that that's, um, I would agree with that. I like the priming protocol. Um, sometimes a lupron flare protocol can be really helpful. I like those a lot in the right patient. Um, and it sounds like from the number of eggs that you got <clears throat> that, that you might be an appropriate patient for that type of protocol. Um, the other thing is w- looking at some of the nuances of the levels that your REI is going to have. You know, what was your absorption of your FSH on day four? What was your response E2 wise, uh, estradiol wise? Like, how is there anything that they can go up on for that that can make a difference? Sometimes adding it to a cycle can help. A lot of it is is trial and error and saying, okay, did we really like the results we got from that cycle? If not, maybe we want to try something different. But those are some of the things that I think about. Did
0: she mention what her AMH was, Susan? 098 So, yeah, I mean, if you were my patient, I would say, yeah, we would like to do everything we can to get more eggs because the more eggs we can get, the better chances we have one to test and one that's normal. Quite honestly, what you got, in my opinion, eight eggs is pretty good for 0.98. And to get one blast to test, you know, trust me, we all want more, but that's not really that far off of normal for you, I would say. Um, And so, you know, but Along those same lines, I agree with Carrie and Susan. I probably would just try and go up on the medicine, the dose, the total dose, to try and push you a little bit harder. I think estrogen priming works great, particularly if you had one that was sort of ahead of the pack, more of like a dominant follicle. Um, And a microdose super on flare is is a... a stimulation that we used to use many years ago, and it capitalizes on your own endogenous estrogen or FSH that you make. So your brain kind of gives you FSH, your own endogenous FSH, and then we give you a bunch of FSH on top of that. So it's almost like a one-two punch. So that might not be a bad idea to see if maybe um, your ovaries could be coaxed to really try and make more eggs.
2: So a couple of things. Um, if you're wanting to do that flare because you did a Lupron trigger, you're probably gonna have to wait three months because it takes three months for those receptors to turn over. A um, couple of things I saw: five out of eight mature. I think that's a little bit on the low side. I mean, you know, we're looking for perfection, <laughs> and so you know, if you did go down that path, or even without, I mean, you're when you're getting eight eggs, your chances of hyperstimulation syndrome are pretty low. So as somebody who loves the good old Lupron trigger, I would probably do a higher degree of HCG trigger. Um, And then the fact that you only had one blast on day seven, day seven embryos, though they can make beautiful, wonderful babies, do have less degree of competency they're they're less likely to result in pregnancy as compared to a day five or day six i usually consider day fives and day six as relatively equal and then we see probably about a 15 to 20 percent drop on day sevens um and so that that to me kind of points to potentially a machinery issue within the egg or embryo most likely and so making sure you're taking some vitamins like coq10 dhea Um, data is mixed beliefs amongst the three of us are mixed on this one Um, but growth hormone might help improve how your embryo is actually acting um, in the lab. So it would be something con- to consider. It is not a miracle, but it, it it is something that might have an effect.
0: One more thought and kind of subtle here, but you know, you're saying the fact that you had eight and only five were mature. What that really kind of says to me is in a 37 year old with a abnormal AMH is that your doctor was really trying their best to scrape out every little egg that might be there. Mm-hmm. So what that says to me is, you know, there might have been some really small follicles that they were just trying their best to get the egg out of. And that's why there was the maturity wasn't quite as good. Yeah. When you look at the fact that there were five mature and
1: then four fertilized, fertilized. that uh-huh. that is a, a good ratio. So, yeah. yeah. So I was I was kind of thinking what Abby was thinking of. I bet they were going for absolutely everything they could get they were and they doing their best to get those eggs in there. And, you know, getting them in the hopes that they were mature because the small ones can become beautiful babies. It's just statistically they are far less likely to kind of in the same way that the day sevens. If they make the baby, it's great, but they're just less likely to make the baby. (sighs) All right.
2: right. What else? Our next one. Thinking about getting a second opinion. 33 years old. IVF process a year started a year ago. Um, Both partners are carriers for cystic fibrosis. PGTA and PGTM testing done. First egg retrieval resulted in two unaffected embryos. Second egg retrieval resulted in four unaffected embryos. Two are mosaic. They have an unbalanced translocation. ERA performed... uh, Oh, we also have an unbalanced translocation. ERA performed before first transfer. Good. M2 testing for me and my husband, both negative. Transfer in February failed to, Failed due to bad luck. Performed a thrombophilia panel. So far, looks good. Found out yesterday the second transfer failed. Have not spoken to Doc directly yet. Doc said, success on transfer is 80%, which seems high to me. What else can we test for? When do you know it's time for a second opinion? Should we do another transfer first or egg retrieval to bank.
1: What's age on this patient, Susan? Did she say?
0: 33. 33, okay. So I'm a little confused. So there's six that were unaffected, but they're also carriers of a balanced translocation too? Yes. That's awful. That's awful. Because we typically say, um, I believe 30% chance of having an unaffected embryo if you have a balanced translocation, but it's hard to tell with PGTA whether it's balanced or not.
2: Well, it depends on how the PGTA is run, on what type of platform, uh, and
1: thirty percent for good embryos is like, is so wildly variable. Yeah, um, I mean, I know the genetics counselors that we mm-hmm. work with; like they they give kind of a more vague percentage in terms of. It's really hard for us to know what percent are going to come out normal versus mm-hmm. not. Uh, So, what I'm hearing
2: is, I think a good, like, first of all, none of us are genetic counselors. (laughs) Yeah, we're just. Unless I'm wrong, none of y'all actually have a degree in genetics? No. I certainly don't. Okay. So, although we know a lot about genetics, this is so complicated that I think you need to have a very good, solid sit down discussion with a genetic counselor to fully, just fully kind of understand the... the And probably a, a genetic counselor um, associated with the company that you did your PGT through, because then they're very specific to that platform as to what is the kind of sensitivity and specificity of, of that test for balanced translocation. Um, but I do have to say an 80% success rate on an embryo transfer. That's high. (laughs) That's a really high promise to give somebody. Yeah. I mean, I like to think we're good, but that's whoo, I'd love to be 80%.
0: She didn't make a comment about which ones are balanced and which ones are unbalanced. So I'm guessing they didn't know when they transferred which ones were balanced and which ones were not.
1: Well, no, I think they did PGTA. So they would have seen the unbalanced ones there. Okay. Yeah. They may not have seen the balanced ones, but they would have seen the unbalanced Um, I think the 80% success rate is not necessarily pie in the sky. Like, I think that to me, based on our rates makes sense. Um, but it's also because if you have a center that is very selective on the embryos, they're willing to biopsy. It means that there's been a lot of selection already done. Um, and so I, in the right circumstances, I can see that. Um, but I think I agree with Susan. I think you get really good genetic counseling on all this to see the impact of, you know, talk to them about the mosaics. Um, many people will not transfer a mosaic. Um, but there, there are some people who will,
2: and there's going to be more and more people that will. I would also recommend uh, like a hysteroscopy. You've had two transfers of chromosomally normal embryos. And we know there's a pretty good study. Gosh, that was probably 10 years ago that came out that said that if we transfer essentially two untested embryos, that 30% of those people who have had a normal saline ultrasound actually have pathology in their uterus. So the fact that you've had two chromosomally normal embryos transferred, I would, you need to have direct eyes on the lining of your uterus.
1: Yeah, there are things you can't see with just the general tests we do before a cycle.
0: Mhm.
2: Okay. All right, what's next? All right. I want to start out by saying how much I appreciate your podcast. Thank you. I'm 35. In 2021, my day three lab showed AMH of 3.2, FSH of 8.2. When repeated in 2022, AMH was 1.6 and FSH was 9.5. We've done six IUI cycles with letrozole and one retrieval. My stimulation was folistim and menopur 150 with Ganorelix, triggered with Lupron and Pregnel. Stimulation cycle was nine days and at the time of trigger, I had about 21 follicles, um, one at 19, four at 18, five at 17, and the rest at 13. We're able to get five mature eggs and two M1s, five fertilized, three stopped growing at 11 cells and two never grew. How common is no blastulation? What protocol changes would be helpful next time? How likely is it to get no embryos next round? Any advice is appreciated.
0: So 21 follicles and five were mature. Is that what she said? Yeah,
2: Yeah. but listen, listen to the sizes. The sizes are pretty small. One is 19, four at 18, five at 17, and the rest are 13. Yeah. Carrie's going to, let me guess, Carrie's going to say your follicles needed to grow for at least two more days. I would (laughs) say so,
1: too. Minimum, like, I would uh, push
0: push it longer. Yeah, I
2: think that makes at
0: least two more days. That makes a big difference, I think, to have bigger follicles.
2: She only stemmed for nine days and, you know, yeah, it, yeah. I can't remember the lot. I mean, unless I had somebody with really bad diminished ovarian reserve and they're like in like 42, 43 and they just do that thing that 40 year olds do. Yeah. Like the 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 I can't remember the last time I triggered somebody before like day 11, much less day nine. Well, so. and, you
0: know, you never know as a physician what the right time is. But I think we do know from a lot of research done in Carrie's practice that the bigger the follicles, the better, the more mature they are, the better they fertilize, the better they develop. So I think we would all agree if you're going to go through again, we would push you. not necess- I mean, maybe not even necessarily change the medicine dramatically, just push you a day further or two. Yeah, probably yeah. means
1: you'll be a little bit more uncomfortable afterwards because the bigger your follicles are and the more that are big, the more that you are going to feel that. So I would be mentally prepared yeah. for I'm going to be really bloated. This is not going to be particularly pleasant, but I think I think there's some serious gains to be made in that. And the yeah. difference in your AMH in a year, I've seen AMHs drawn two, three months apart that are that far apart. And I think part of the lab, part of it's variation biologically that we don't really have a great explanation
0: of. Yeah. So yeah, five mature says it all right there.
2: Yeah. Um, a couple more days should help. Agreed. Agreed. All right. Good stuff. All right. Next yeah. one. Are we going to IVF too soon into a clinic that is eight hours away? First, thank you for everything you do. All the information resources have been a wonderful source of comfort for, for this data-driven gal. My question for you is, are we jumping into IVF too soon, especially considering we are looking at using CCRM Colorado? Feel free to if necessary, which is an eight hour drive from us. Wow. Um, has it, Husband and I have been um, having timed intercourse on and off since late 2020 in combination with some medicated cy- cycles after CNRE in late 2021. Um, unmedicated cycles had luteal phase on an average of nine days, so they've been using progesterone to lengthen the phase. Um, had seven unmedicated cy- cycles, five medicated cycles, three using progesterone, two failed IUI cycles. Um, all non-IUI timed so that we have intercourse the day before, on, or after LH surge or as close to possible. In 2021, AMH was 0.88, but as of June 20. 22, it is at 1.4, um, taking vitamin D, prenatal, CoQ10, fish oil, and vitamin C. All others levels after an HSG blood work semen analysis by local RE are considered in range. Um, she is 34, husband is 32. Main concern is, are we moving on to IVF too soon? And have we not given it enough on our own to go on our own? Is that luteal phase length really as much of a blocker as I think it is? We, have also, we also have to decide... Between using a closer clinic, two hours, who have fewer, fewer protocols available in patients, and CCRM Colorado, eight hours, who, in my understanding, is one of the best clinics with many protocols available and who see a large volume of patients. But it's about two times the cost and a much more complicated logistics. Susan, you probably can speak to that better than anybody. <laughs> You've been there, done that. Right. So as somebody who flew across the country to do IVF at... I couldn't do IVF at the clinic I was working at at the time. And I really couldn't go to my competitors who are right next door because that would have been a little awkward. So I chose to go to somewhere like literally across the country. Um, Just based on logistics, if you have an option to do something that is good quality care close to you, don't add the travel into it. Okay. I mean, like I have a beautiful daughter from the IVF cycle. I am glad I did it. It was a means to an end, but adding that travel and the uncertainty of like, even if you're doing local monitoring, it's like, when do I have to get a flight? And what if, I mean, I got stuck in a huge, um, like one of the biggest snowstorms in New York history and (laughs) I mean, things like this happen. And if you don't have to go to it, um, I would, I would recommend considering something closer as long as you think that you're going to get good quality care there.
0: Yeah, I, I think the number of protocols, I mean, I think she's a little, I mean, you could argue that we could, we could do a number of protocols too, depending on how we do the menopure, how we do the Ovidril, if we add growth hormone. I mean you know, we're all pretty creative. I think we can come up with different protocols and maybe we don't publicize that we have all these different protocols, but we do. And so I think, you know, if it's a quality person that's, you know, that's you feel is going to be good for you. I'm like, Susan, I I don't think I would travel far and wide because people always have this feeling that the grass is greener on the other side. And a lot of times it's, it really is not. It just
2: tastes different. (laughs)
1: One one other thing about the the protocol, like like Abby said, our so our clinic when we were automating things, we're like, okay, we're gonna write down all of our different protocols so that all we have to do is tell our nurses do protocol number one or five or whatever. When we started writing down everything, not even uh, not even crazy like random protocols that we will sometimes do, but just variations on the normal theme. I mean, we were already hitting the thirties and forties, just, yeah. because, you know, a dose of hundred is going to be a different protocol than 125, than 150, than 200 and so on. And so the, the protocols, is, that a, that is a communication thing between the internal staff um, that is really not terribly different from any other clinic, I don't think. Because the doc is going to say, I want to do X, Y, and Z, and they're going to make it happen. They haven't numbered everything out, which is fine. Most of us don't don't really need to. You just say, all right, this is what we're going to do. So that happens to work from a logistics method for that clinic. And so that's what they do, which is great. But um, but yeah, and then the other thing is I have a lot of patients who are traveling long distances to come, come see me. And there are definite benefits to it. I mean, if you need something that that other clinic does that your local one doesn't, or you've tried a couple times and you just need a second opinion, absolutely totally worth it. Um, but it it does add a lot of headache in and having the last minute flights. And I, I did IVF on one of my girlfriends recently, and she walked into the airport to come in on a flight. And she had four different flights booked for that day. And so the TSA agent was like, which plane are you actually getting on? <laughs> and she was like, I actually... Don't know. Let me pull up the boarding pass for the one that I'm I'm planning on getting on, on. Getting on, and she showed it to him. But it's it can be really stressful. So I I would agree. Like if you can get get it done close to you, do it. If if you need to travel, lots of people do it. It's entirely possible.
2: Yeah, we all we all have patients that do travel. It's just yeah. If if there's an option that will provide you good quality care, and you're saying travel because of the name of a, of a clinic and number of protocols, which I I totally agree. Like when you start, you know, I kind of, we have big categories, but then within those categories, we have little subcategories and things like that. So I would take it with a little bit of a grain of salt. Yeah. All right. Let's do one or two more. All right. Um, I was in the middle of a Medicaid cycle for a frozen embryo transfer, estradiol patches, when I went for my blood work and ultrasound this morning and found my ovaries were quiet and lining looked great. But when the nurse called, she said my progesterone was elevated, showing I had ovulated despite despite what the ultrasound showed. Mm -hmm. How can this happen? Love your podcast.
1: Sometimes it just happens. Yeah, that's why we check it.
2: Yeah. Like we're, we're OCD
1: for a reason because even when we think everything is going perfect and our patient is taking the meds that, that they need to, and they're doing everything as prescribed, like there's a reason you're in a fertility clinic and it's because your body is sometimes doing exactly what it wants to do, not what everybody else wants it to do. And, and that's why we check. I mean, nobody's going to freak out about that. It's just like a all right, take your progesterone, get a cycle and call us and we'll do it again. And doesn't mean the next cycle is not going to work. Doesn't mean that they necessarily have to do anything differently. I mean, they will, this this type of scenario rankles fertility docs. And so they're going to go back and they're going to go back and look at your baseline and look at anything you have done since then and your prior records and then go, all right, does she like, does this happen all the time with this, this particular body, or is this a random one off? Um, and so they'll decide if they need to do a different type of protocol or or change something. But, you know, it happens. That's why we check. I'm glad they were checking. And I'm glad that they noticed it before you went to a transfer. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the key. Things.
0: Yeah, that's, it's, yeah. it's frustrating for everybody.
2: The reason why we check it is because progesterone opens and closes the window of opportunity for implantation. So if you had already gotten progesterone exposure from ovulating, then then your window's closed and we could do the transfer and you're not going to get pregnant. And as frustrating as it is to stop, regroup, come up with plan two, it's much better than not getting pregnant.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And we're always disappointed when that happens, when somebody comes in with a Giant cyst or their progesterone's elevated, or their lining looks terrible. It always makes us feel bad, too. We don't want you to have to go back through all that stuff again. It's kind of overwhelming but but we want to give you the best chance and so, like Susan said, I think the bright side is they figured it out before
2: you had an infrared transfer absolutely, all yeah. right. One more. Hi, ladies. I look forward to your podcast every Tuesday. Has really gotten me through the journey this year. I am 32, almost 33 in July, and my husband is 29. We have been trying to conceive for seven years. Over the course of seven years, I've done six clomid cycles of time dinner course, two IUIs with letrozole. First one resulted in a chemical pregnancy, um, HCG of 10, and one retrieval that resulted in five embryos not tested but graded for AA. I have had two HSGs, one hysteroscopy, one laparoscopy, saline ultrasound. All blood work is textbook perfect. Two failed embryo transfers with unexplained infertility and slight male factor. Where do you suggest we go from here for our next transfer? What have we missed? We have three embryos left. Thank you for all you do. That's when you start thinking outside the box. And
0: and these are things that not all of us would agree on. But, you know, we, after two transfers of great embryos and there's not a pregnancy, we start thinking, okay, what's, what's out there? What can we do? What can we wrangle? What can we do differently? And that's where some of us would think about doing an ERA biopsy. <laughs> some of us would not think about doing an ERA biopsy. Um, some of us would think about doing a receptiva assay too, although you've had a laparoscopy, and that's really kind of looking for an inflammatory mediator that tends to be associated with endometriosis. You've had a negative laparoscopy, so that probably wouldn't be something that I would think about doing. Um, but that's really the frustrating job of, or thing of what we do. There's just It's hard to know what else to look at. We just don't know that much about implantation.
2: So I would also, if you haven't been tested for chronic endometritis, I would make sure that there's no kind of low grade inflammation, infection going on inside the uterus. Um, double check, you know, your thyroid function. If you have any other underlying health conditions, making sure those are picture perfect, okay? Because you know we we want to make sure that you are as healthy as what you should be. Let's see. Anything else, Carrie? They're not PGT tested embryos. Oh, that's a great point. Right. I, I mean, those first two embryos could have very easily been both abnormal.
1: Yeah. I mean, if they were, if they were PGT tested euploid embryos, then I would say do a thrombophilia panel or. or an RPL, recurrent pregnancy loss panel, knowing that they're not PGT tested, you could, you could conceivably thaw them and do PGT testing on them. Mm-hmm. That has the risk of losing them in the thaw or damaging them in the extra freeze thaw process.
2: But that risk is moderately low.
0: Yeah, we, we do that a bunch in Nashville. And we've really had, I mean, I, minimal, minimal damage. Most of the time, the embryos do great and they get pregnant with the normal ones.
2: And when you look at cost-wise, realistically, thawing, biopsying, and refreezing is probably going to be the cost of a FET cycle, approximately. And so if we're wrong one more time, you would have paid for it. Yeah.
1: yeah. So and that can also tell you, if you know you want multiple kids, that may spur you on to doing another retrieval soon sooner rather than later before you go through a transfer. Like if you know, oh, my three remaining embryos, two of them are abnormal, that may push you to say, okay, let's let's do another retrieval sooner rather than later. Go straight into PGT testing so that you've got full family planning, not just for first kid, but
0: for a later one as well. Um, you know. So Carrie, at 32, what would you tell her statistically about her five embryos genetically if she's 32? At least one of them's normal statistically.
1: Like by the time you get through <laughs> all of them, you are very likely to get get a baby at the end of it we just don't know, don't know is it going to be on your next embryo transfer or the last available embryo transfer um, you know statistically I would say the other three are going to be normal um, but statistics are great when you're talking about a football stadium full of women, they suck when you're talking about one woman. Individuals, like, yeah. It it does not take very much to throw numbers. I mean, if you figure just one embryo in either direction is going to throw it 10, uh, 20% out of five, I mean... That's that's a big deal, and so you know I I think there's probably a baby in there. It's just can you put your head down, suck it up, and get through that? And do you want to do anything else prior to your next transfer, like like PGT, like any endometritis evaluation, like whatever?
2: Yeah, and I, I do think this is a good time for you and your partner to kind of sit down and talk about how many kids you do want to have, because I think that is if you only want to have one ish kids. When-ish. <laughs> When-ish, um, yeah. Then, then either, you, you may not need to do those other things and consider another egg retrieval and things like that. But if you're sitting here saying, I want to have three kids, that, that's a different conversation.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. All right. Well, to our audience, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for more. Be sure to subscribe, leave us a review in um, iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Instagram, we're on Facebook, YouTube, all of those places. So hop on by, leave us a like,
0: subscribe and say hello. You can also visit us on com to submit specific questions that you have about infertility. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Doc segment like today. So don't hold back. We'd love to hear from you.
2: As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Bye.